Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. We're live on YouTube, Ryan. We're live on YouTube. We're back with Craft Brewed Agile. Todd, I can't believe we're day drinking again. Can you Can you imagine? <laughs> it's, it's not the morning, so I think it's acceptable this time. And it's Friday. Yeah, there's uh, got to be we've some done, benefits to work with. Yeah, well, the sun's always over the yard arm somewhere in the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> We'll go like with that it. attitude. <laughs> so this week, a uh, good friend of ours from across the pond. So we're going international with Craft Brewed Agile, which is a big treat. Simon Rindle. Simon is a fellow PST. He's also co-author of an excellent book called Mastering Professional Scrum. Um, he wrote this with another friend of ours, Stephanie Ackerman. This is in the Professional Scrum series, one of the best books on the market if you want to learn how to actually use Scrum in a professional way. You know, Simon, your co-author said that our book pairs beautifully with your book. You learn professional scrum here. You learn how to get back to professional scrum when you stray from the path. Together, belongs in every Scrum Master's Toolkit. Two wonderful books. I couldn't agree more. So, Simon, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, first of all, it's just great when we talk, but I want to know, because Todd and I can get kind of the same regional beers, and we hear about the same kind of different uh, breweries, but you're, you're in a different market. What have you yeah. brought? What do you have? I've got two. Um, two of my faves. I, I'm a real ale drinker. Um, so uh, a well-seasoned ale. The first one, Trooper. Um, as you can see from the writing, uh, this was inspired by Iron Maiden. And it's brewed by Robinson's up north. Um, it's a, a nice golden ale. That's and, lovely. Uh, it's got a really nice, nice clean little bit hoppy finish so that's that one and my my second one just in case it's a dry argument uh, is spit <laughs> spitfire uh this is a, a wonderful uh ale from shepherd's name in kent and that's one of the oldest breweries in australia uh, in the uk not in australia not there anymore um <laughs> and it's it's real ale that helped me stay in britain uh, real ale and rugby two great things you just got Todd's attention. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Todd, what are you drinking, buddy? So I am drinking another Tired Hands. Uh, it's called Alien Church. It's an IPA. Um, and in the spirit of talking to Simon, I have my um, Brewed by Numbers glass that I got when I was in London. When I nice. went out to a brewery. This was, this was back at my uh, PSF, PSD Train the Trainer is when I got this glass. Beautiful. First time I ever met Simon. So I'm going back to um, Off Square Brewing. I've been a real big fan. They're in Crown Point, Indiana. This one's called the Hamilton Porter. So anyone who watched oh, nice. the movie Sandlot, Hamilton Porter was the, the, the kid who, uh, the boisterous catcher. And he, the famous line from him is on the bottom of the can, you're killing me, Smalls. So this is a, as clearly it's a, it's a porter. It's got, I guess, some kind of campfire, um, graham cracker, you know, s'mores kind of taste to it. We'll see how it goes. I, I haven't enjoyed this one yet, but let's, uh, the Hamilton Porter. So I think three awesome beers to give a shot. So we got to load it up. 
because as the listeners and the viewers know, our time box is the time it takes to finish the beers. And once the beer's gone, conversation's over. So we'll get those loaded I like up. How, I like how Simon came with two. Yeah, I think I always... That's a proper Aussie right there. Yeah, you know, and you know, you know, he's a rugger if he came with two, right? I feel kind of weak now. I feel like I'm not representing well if I only came with one. I actually uh, don't believe him. I think he's got a third in reserve. I <laughs> throwing uh, the glasses out of shot, right? Uh, there's a fellow I used to play rugby with. Um, he would he could drink one point every hour, uh, every, one point twenty minutes, and he'd do that while standing. <laughs> Better men than us. Uh, crazy what fella. Position, what position did you uh, play in rugby, Simon? Um, I used to play front row. Uh, so front I started row. off hooking, then went loose head and finished up tight head. I was a, I was a tight head myself. I started loose head and then I went over to tight head. Yeah, it's uh, often that way because it's a much more technical position to play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Best position on the field that we get no credit for because all the backs and all their fancy haircuts and yeah air gel well, get all the credit you know the the forwards the forwards win the game the backs decide the margin <laughs> true story yeah so how, how are you folks doing in this um this crazy times these covid times we're actually on my side everyone's healthy um we're still working like we're teaching that you know what todd and i actually just finished up a a live virtual, so online professional scrum product owner class this week. We went into it kind of skeptical. We came out of it. We actually enjoyed it. Like we, we had 12 great students in the class. We, we leveraged some really cool online tools. We did a lot more facilitation, a lot less direct teaching. The students yep. got a lot out of it. We certainly enjoyed it. I mean, we're, I mean, we feel fortunate and blessed just to keep working, but we actually think this is a viable way going forward. And I don't know, man. I, I think oh, so far so good. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, you know, and being, um, I, I totally agree with what you said, and I, I really surprisingly enjoyed it. Um, but with uh, some of my time just sitting at home, I've uh, I've rekindled my love for coding. Um, so I have, I've been working on some side uh, projects just to do some things. Um, so that's been fun. You know, um, I, I can't believe how much I miss professionally coding all the time yeah. so we, we were talking to Kent Beck and it's funny how his book has led me down the path of anytime I do anything I'm writing failing unit tests first <laughs> so uh, I'm practicing what I preach so you know it's That's funny like, we've been doing a lot of like so I've taken the time to kind of upgrade the podcast equipment and I've been messing with new toys and so I'm keeping myself busy through frivolous purchases and, and new hobbies and projects <laughs> I'd imagine everyone has had what I want to do, I want to do a recap show by the end of this COVID-19 situation and just have people come on and show the piles of stuff they bought during the, the quarantine that they have no idea what they're going to do with going forward. Um, I think this whole um, live streamed interactive style of training, I, I think there will be a place for it in the market following COVID. You know, when we do start getting back together again, Nothing will replace that face-to-face -face feel. However, there are, I think we've, we're, we're learning that there are some really good scenarios where using uh, tools can help you. I love the fact that you guys are co-facilitating. I think that's really important to make it a smooth and engaging experience for folks. Um, I think that's key. Yeah, we won't, uh, well, I won't speak for Todd, but I personally won't do a virtual course solo. I just think it's a, it's a diminished experience for everybody. Look, I mean, we're realistic about this. You get about 90%. We think we mm -hmm. can get up to about the 90% experience uh, online. And that's with two people. So that's with co-facilitation and a lot of, you know, we, we did some before class and after class work with individuals and a lot of extra steps. And we think we can get there. If it were solo, man, that would be a miserable experience. I think it, it's, it's a much tougher much more challenging experience um, just to to manipulate the tools and direct people and be able to monitor chat windows and all that cool stuff yeah you need you need um you know somebody to to back you up and then you know flip it in and out because yep. you got to project so much more energy out when you're having 
this virtual space to try and just maintain the enthusiasm that we can deliver in a face-to-face -face course. Yeah. yeah, and even something as simple as like in Zoom, right? We could do breakout rooms. Well, that, yeah. it takes a bit of configuration to do that. So if you're sitting and waiting and there's a long pause, well, let me set up the Zoom rooms and there's a long pause, right? It's like, it takes you two or three minutes to do that. And then we, we've been using Mural um, and then we're constantly changing and facilitating with Mural and putting people in different murals and places. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot to kind of handle by yourself. Yeah. That so I what have see. you what what have you been up to, Simon? So you wrote the book. Um, you were saying you were um, coming off a big engagement. What else have you been up to? Um, the, so January, I finished up as PSM steward, so uh, handed over to to Pavel. Um, so now rolled off that. Um, been spending a lot of time with with one particular client, which was fascinating because it was oil and gas. Uh, heavy engineering, uh, legal, a lot of work with the legal teams, marketing teams. So lots of non-IT scrum and general agile and a lot of work with very senior leadership, which is awesome because you, you then have to come back to core principles and the, the focus on values and the core principles of shortening up your feedback loops, engaging listening with your customer and having real clarity about what your product and what your value proposition is becomes super critical. And then how do you enable and inspire your teams to go forth and deliver? And you need that, that real clarity of communication. Hmm. So, uh, that's what I was doing up to, uh, end of March. And then for the last few weeks, I've just been, um, hanging out, uh, hanging out with the family um learning trying to trying to learn the guitar <laughs> very nice maybe we'll have to have you back when you've mastered it to play a tune oh that, yeah you know, hold don't hold your breath on that one <laughs> todd we usually have a special question one that um one that kind of gets the the guest kind of kind of the ideas going for this one i i thought we'd play nice with simon and i just want to know simon what is the series that has been binge watched the most in the Rindle household? Uh, by me, by the kids, or ever? What's been the hot the hot topic? What's been the one where everyone's like, "This is the show"? Well, this I'm, I'm going to name three because the kids. Uh, they, there's a show that they into. It's called Friday Night Dinner, um, which is a, a very crazy oddball UK comedy. Um, they lo they're loving that. Uh, not my cup of tea. Um, <laughs> I love engineering stuff. And there's a great one I saw on Netflix called From Rust to Riches, which follows uh, a body shop and they get in cars and flip them. They, they turn them into hot rods and you see some wonderful engineering and they can manufacture anything. And there's some brilliant cars that they, they come out with and you watch the engineering process on that. Um, and, uh, with my wife, she's not so, so keen on that. So Sarah and I have been watching money heist. Oh, how is that? It's really cool. Money heist is cool. All right. Yeah. Don't have I that. Or... Like, I, I got, I got new things to watch now, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's not one for when the kids are around, right? Got it. It'd have to be in bed. We, uh, so there's one on Netflix called brew brothers. It's two brothers trying to run a brewery and, uh, it is absolutely hilarious but it is absolutely not appropriate for your kids. So if you're watching, yeah. you're going to check out Brew Brothers. I think it's, there's a, there's a young lady on the show who just is the, one of the funniest people I've seen on a sitcom in a long time. And it just, uh, yeah, we've been enjoying that. I mean, Tiger King, of course, but you can only watch that so many times. No, this, uh, I, yeah, no, not my cup of tea at all. Uh, and then on Amazon Prime, of course, there's Vikings. Yes, Vikings is excellent. So just, uh, and just last night we started rewatching the Punisher. I've never watched it. Is it good? It's, it's good. It's, it's dark, but yeah. Very cool. Once again. Uh, what's going on in the Miller house besides our kids killing each other at Fortnite every day? <laughs> oh, Simon, uh, uh, the Ripley boys and my son have just basically been on Fortnite with each other since this began. And Ryan and I don't know how to stop it. And I don't think we're going to try. 
<laughs> but other than that, um, Hulu has all of Seinfeld. Oh, so we started watching Seinfeld from the really from the beginning, and I just forgot like how absolutely hilarious it is, right? Um, yeah. it, and, and uncomfortable at points, right? Like my wife was always talking about how um, I don't know if you've uh, what was the other Larry David show that was on. Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, she she it makes you so uncomfortable to watch that show. There's some of that in Seinfeld, but I forgot about how funny it is. So I think we're on like we're up to season three, about halfway through season three right now, which has been, which has been great. That's cool. Great show. Yeah. So I mean, we should actually do a little agile discussion. I think last week we kind of rode this line with Kent, where okay, maybe we we talked a little bit, but you know, with Simon, your experience recently. Um, I'm a little familiar with this. I was kind of on, on the U.S. side of this project for a little bit. Um, you were with a, a, one of the largest companies in the world. We're not going to name them um, just because I think we're both still under some contracts and some obligations. But with one of the largest, I mean, it's got to be a top 50 company in the world. Um, yeah. If, if it was a country, it'd be the 100th largest country by GDP. Yep. Yeah. So just massive. And these are the kind of companies we work in quite a bit. Um, and we see them, we see a lot of successes. We see a lot of struggles. You know, what is it about these just like behemoth organizations to where agility just seems to, I mean, in your experience where it just seems to run into a wall, like what are the barriers that you're seeing? Not just in like the small companies or the midsize, but these massive, massive organizations. I, I think the pattern is the same across all. Okay. Um, so if, if I can flip it, you know, what, what helps it where there's success? Sure. Um, and when there is true consideration and people are living the values, the values of that organization, and they use those values to help guide their behaviors, that creates that wonderful space of trust so that you can then use empiricism. Now, what, what inhibits it or prevents it? Um, politics. Um, and sometimes that, that lack of transparency is critical, particularly in your very large enterprises, because uh, the fear factor is huge. Um, regardless of the size of your organization, your failure to deliver puts the, the possibility or the potential of that organization sustaining and growing at, at risk, right? Because it's going to hit your, your balance sheet. It's going to affect your bottom line. Um, because in my opinion, agile is absolutely ruthless on value, compassionate with people. Now, anything that compromises that will impact upon the ability of the organization to roll into that truly empirical behavior, which agility is all about. So how can you shorten your feedback loops? How can you run small experiments to true up your, your ideas that if we do this, we're going to get that. And do you have the guts to call it saying, oh, if we do this, this will happen. And when it doesn't happen, call it and go, right, we're not backing that bed anymore. Um, anything that inhibits that sets you up for, you know, potential danger. And that's where you see pockets of success where for whatever reason, some of the control structures aren't in place. There's not good governance. There's, um, well, you know, almost fluffy agile where everybody just wants to say, oh, it's, you know, let's, let's sit on our beanbags, sing Kumbaya, you know, this is agile. It's no, it's, there has to be that, that empiricism, that focus on value. And that will be apparent in the bottom line. I, I really love that phrase. It's um, I'm going to butcher it now, but it's compassionate towards people, ruthless towards value. Yeah. I think that's, that is so foundational. That's, that's one of the best ways I've heard it put. I wish, I wish we had written that Todd. Cause that's just, that's, that's really how we are. Like we, we are, you know, when we talk about, so we'll, Todd and I will talk about the, the ways that a scrum master, like what, what do we need to see in a scrum master? Right. And we'll talk about, they have to love their team. It's that compassion for people. Right. And they yeah. have to want those people to be wildly successful. So they're putting the success of the, the team and the people around them and the organization above their, their own, but they're also uh, showing zero tolerance for organizational impediments, which means value and delivery is paramount. But it's that compassion blended with 
um, that ruthless uh, search and, and enablement of value that, that I think just makes all the difference. I really like that. That's pretty interesting. And then if you, sorry, Tom. Oh, um, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I was just, uh, this is making me think I've, I've been uh, speaking quite a bit with Will Seal uh, recently, and he and I are um, going to be putting on a workshop uh, around metrics. And what you were saying just remind me about how, uh, you know, how many, how many times you go into an organization that asks you to come in and help them improve that are, they're already down this agile journey. And you, you get the, the saying, we, we feel like we're getting better. Right, yeah. um, we feel like it. Um, the team happiness is is better, right? We're increasing velocity, right? But they don't know, right? So, therein comes like the metrics conversation. Like, what metrics? Uh, what metrics can you use to to understand when it's time to pull the plug? You know, you designated five million dollars to develop this product, and you're a hundred thousand dollars in, and you've you've unvalidated the idea. It's no longer a valid idea. You figured out that you shouldn't. Um, but so many organizations just say, well, we have $5 million. We should just keep, the more money we keep putting into it, maybe we'll get the benefit of what we thought it was going to be. Um, so many more organizations don't, I think it's maybe politics and the fear of failure or not wanting to say that they failed or something along those lines. So I feel like I'm taking it in so many different directions right now, but I keep thinking like metrics and hard and fast um, ways that you can, you can prove that, you know, um, as the saying goes in the product owner course, validation, right? Yeah. And those you think about the four four different phases of metrics and it's so easy to start tracking um utilization metrics busy yeah. metrics as opposed to true outcome and impact metrics uh some of those numbers are harder to find uh also you're aware of you've asked for those numbers it can be very challenging because they haven't got the instrument to attain those numbers or those numbers are obfuscated through complex balance sheets or this doesn't sit in my particular business area or it rolls up into here or there, depending upon your organization, it, it, ultimately you can track it back to where the, the customer is engaged. Um, but trying to get that feedback loop as tight as possible is, is really key. And so when you think about as a leader, um, you know, this ties into the, the great concepts of the, the pal e course and you start looking at the work at Marquet and Sinek and tie that with the agility ideas. If you're absolutely crystal on your, your vision, your purpose, and people are really engaged in that, it's a matter of communicating the control mechanisms and the governance structures in such a way that they're really robust guardrails. So that then that ties into your metric system uh, and then, then you can just get out of the way and let people ship. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I, I feel like, um, I feel like, yeah, you know, for some reason, this, this, these productivity metrics are, are, are almost counter to what we're trying to do, right? Because it's like you said, they're easy to attain and it becomes the sole focus. And then it's about making everybody as busy as possible, even though the busy as possible might not be, you could be really busy and not being doing anything of importance, right? I sometimes yeah. pretend like I'm really busy, so I don't have to do things around the house. Well, <laughs> or, or messing that job up so you don't get asked to do it again. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Laundry. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I, my wife's way smarter than me. She's clocked that game. She goes, oh, you just need more practice at it then. <laughs> but um, if it's easy to attain it can often be easy to gain yep. and you know we, we're engaged with super smart people you get brilliant people engaged and say look your bonus your, your compensation package is linked to making this number go up you've got a professional problem solver then going oh if this number goes up I get more money no worries stand back <laughs> we can make that happen. Yeah. You know, I, you know, you brought up the Pali, and I think many of the the viewers out there know that I'm the steward for that course, and we we talk through these items a lot. Or I'm one of the stewards. Ron Arigna in the Netherlands is my European counterpart, and we're constantly talking about how do we bring these ideas forward, how do we bring these values forward, how do we in two days convince a leadership team that they have to look at these things completely differently, basically use empiricism as an advantage, mm -hmm. not as a weapon. 
right? Because transparency, any of these tools wielded in a, in a nefarious way exposes people badly and stories get spun and, and suddenly we're back to that fear and all those horrible things, but used beautifully or used appropriately, man, these empiricism is where it's at, man. I, so Todd talked about, you know, people are like, Hey, I think things are going well, or I think customers are happy with the product. And so if I'm in a scrum master role and I I've been called condescending for this, but I think it's an important approach. I'll turn to the product owner, you know, perhaps, you know, a product owner has come to me and said, Hey, I think our customers are happy. And I'll turn right to him and say, Hey, thoughts are fun. I just had a bunch of them myself. I'm not going to share them, but how do you know? Yeah. Right. And, and it's just, and that moment where someone's like, oh, no, I don't know. And it's like, that's cool. So let's figure it out. But I have found even at the, the largest companies on the planet or at even the, the, the early stage startups, so many things are done based off of thoughts, feelings and bias to where it's almost amazing that we managed to get any value out the door at all. The human is so susceptible to bias. Um, my, my metaphor for what you're talking about is empiricism's, empiricism to agile is a kitchen knife to cooking. Now, a really good chef's knife, when wielded by somebody who knows how to use it and has the correct intent, enables us to deliver amazing meals. But it's not like you're going to give it to a two-year-old and go, yeah, go, knock yourself out because the results will be catastrophic. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and this, this ties into this, um, you know, David Marquet's model of, of competence is as a leader, it's our duty to ensure that people understand how to use and apply the tool appropriately so that they can render value with it. And so that, you know, their whole attitude when they pick the thing up is mindful and appropriate. So Simon, you've also, you've done something really interesting in the UK. You've built out one of the premier training uh, companies uh, on your, uh, on your island. So advanced product delivery, um, you teach a lot of the scrum.org courses. I know you do a lot of other offerings. You know, what is it that's driven uh, your business to, to kind of take that premier spot? Like what are some of the values and principles that you've laid out that, cause I know you're a very principled man. Like that's something that I love about you when we talk, like you do not waver on, on the principles and values you bring to the table. You are, you are, you will, you will lose money uh, to maintain your principles and values, which is just so rare and so awesome in, in today's world. Um, but what are those, those principles and values that you've used to actually set up, you know, probably the, one of the more reputable and I think successful um, training organizations uh, in, in England. Oh, thank you. Um, I think it's, well, it's, it comes down to the values. I do try and live the scrum values. Uh, and part of the reason I've just taken a step back from things for the last couple of weeks is I wasn't, um, I wasn't drinking my own champagne, you know, um, uh, and I was doing too many really long days too much and the, the balance got a bit out of whack. And so first of all, values, the scrum values, I, I genuinely believe that when we, when we give ourselves the space and treat everyone with focus, respect, openness, courage, and commitment, it will help build trust and engender positive conversations. Um, the purpose of APD is to enable individuals, teams, and organizations deliver better value in a humane way. Um, and the, the three tenants that underpin that is being positive, looking for the, the upside, being pragmatic. You know, it's not like, even though I, I do love Scrum, it's not the only framework out there. Um, there's many other frameworks, there's many techniques and practices. So just being pragmatic and finding what's the smallest thing you can do to get a bit better. Um, and then trying to be professional. Uh, so you know, that bad stuff's going to happen from time to time. So how you clean the mess up probably tells more about you than um, when things are going swimmingly, I figure, you know, it's just, and that to me, that, that space, I, I can then just be me. So being genuine and much, much the same as the way you guys roll. 
Well, we try to. I, I think the one of the interesting, I mean, that's it's all great stuff that I hope people are kind of jotting down and thinking, yeah, what is my mission? What values do we bring forward? But you're at, at the start of that answer, you're also your admission of, yeah, I wasn't doing that, so I had to pause, right? So while everyone else is scrambling to figure out how to work in this new environment or they're figuring out the latest scheme to grab the most market share in that, what I think is awesome is that, and I, you know what, Todd and I had to do this too. We had to kind of take a pause and go, you know, what is it that we really want to achieve here? What is it that we want to put into the world? And I think that, that ability to sense when you need to just stop and think is also so sorely lacking, like in today's environment where it's just like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to risk not being first just to make sure this is actually congruent with the principles, values, and the, the authentic, um, nature of myself and then decide what to do. And that, that seems to be lacking. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I was very strongly influenced by my father who was, uh, an amazing craftsman. He was a, a fitter, fitter, fitter and turner, a tool maker and a locksmith. So you could give that man anything and he could make anything out of metal or wood. And the, the message that was repeated, uh, hundreds of times a day when I was his offsider. If, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly the first time around. And so it's not so much the execution of the job, it's the preparation for the job, understanding the job, execution, and then cleaning up. And then the next one that got trotted out very regularly was the job's not finished until the tools are cleaned and put back where they came from. And that, allows you to then repeat things and give that that ability to deliver a consistent standard at a professional level. And so as professionals, we should all be constantly renewing uh, our tool base and thinking and learning and just sharing from each other. Interesting like to hear you say that, Simon, because my, my grandfather um, had a ton of influence on me and he was a master craftsman. I mean, the guy could build anything there. My, my uh, grandparents' entire house was, the furniture was built by him, right? He could build wow. anything. And so a lot of those similar things, you know, that you were saying, um, I, I remember hearing, and I think that's where I fell in love with software development, right? Um, I, get, I can get around the house. I can do enough stuff that I'm, I can do okay. I can't build a kitchen table. I don't think you'd want to sit at it. <laughs> but uh, I think that's why I fell in, in love with coding, the, the act of creating something and treating it like a craftsman, right? And I think all those same laws and principles apply there. And then getting into Scrum, um, I, I don't know, I think that all that stuff really resonates in, 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 in all the areas of our lives. And if we take that into our professions, which I, I will admit when, when I first heard of the live virtual training path, uh, my first, I did not have a good reaction. Um, I didn't feel like it could be as quality as what you do and what you teach in class. And that's really important. Um, it's really important personally to me. Uh, and I know both of, both of you guys as well. Um, but Ryan and I ran some experiments by creating um, some free workshops, uh, by doing things for user groups and uh, but I think at first I was like, I'm not doing it, not doing it, <laughs> you know, like, just like, uh, cause I, you know, I think I have a little bit of a fight the system in me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But after doing something, you know, after coming around and taking that break and thinking about it, it's like, it's worth experimenting just because I, my first reaction is not, it's worth experimenting. And I've been quite pleased. I was been quite pleased as to how you can get people to engage with, the, with each other, right? Uh, I think that's what it's all about. Um, not just dishing information at people, but letting them, letting, letting them understand the ideas and on their own and within groups and things like that. So, and it's, it's working. So. I, I think the, there's a lot of hunger out there and, and people are more tolerant because this is a new unknown space. And so you can use a lot of the, the uh, Socratic techniques where you can just throw the question at and people figure it out. People are smart, right? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a big shift that, that we had to kind of reconcile. That's, a, that's the square peg and round hole that we had to come up you know, and actually be comfortable with is that for this to truly work, you have to decide um, that the students themselves are, are, are smart and that they have the knowledge within them 
um, to actually find the answers on their own. And so if you believe that and if you address them that way, it's pretty cool what can actually happen. Um, but that's a really hard jump, right? Because we're supposed to be the experts. You know, we're supposed to be the, and, and part of like the, I think the allure for a lot of us, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself and I'll see if you guys agree. Doing these in-person classes, you get to be a performer. Like you're at the front, you are teaching professional scrum. You are the embodiment of the scrum values. The focus and attention is on you. You have this captive audience to where if you are speaking in a confident, well-rehearsed way and you're conveying information that resonates and hits the heart, you just have this group of people who are, you know, they're just following you constantly. They're engaged. It's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's addictive, right? That, I mean, it's there when people like us go and do thousand person keynotes or conference talks or classes, it's not because we're humble. You know, I mean, we walk in, and speak with humility, but there is this desire to, there's something in us that wants to be that performer and to have that attention and to shift to this LVC. Um, it's all about the student. Like it's very like, you know, at one point Todd and I were like, man, this is almost cheating, letting them do a lot of the heavy mental lifting, but they did it beautifully. And we were able to set structures and boundaries and facilitate in a way that all the information got conveyed. You know, what do you, I mean, what do you think about that? Oh, that's the heart of, that's, that? that's the, that's the heart of training from the back of the room, right? Yep. That's, so. that's the essence. Now, uh, you get a buzz when you stand up in front of a group. Um, you know, I know some amazing trainers that are very, they, to recharge, they need their time on their own. Um, and some folks just go out and find more people to get their buzz. But when you, when you are sharing some ideas, um, and helping people along a pathway, whether it's a conference talk, a meetup, or a class, there's a buzz in that. Um, just hearing you explain that that shift to LVCs, uh, I reckon the reason that you're able to do it, firstly, you prepped with the tools. Secondly, you know the course materials intimately. Yeah. And so, you, you, you embrace and understand the core learning objectives and the core outcomes that you're looking for the folks to reach within that, that time frame. And so then in a true training from the back of the room style, you can, you know, connect it up, put the space out there, allow for that discussion and just make sure that all those key learning objectives are met. And because a lot of time it's just at the end and going, Oh, and this, and they go, yeah. Oh yeah. And that missed that one. Yeah. Tick. Um, and it's smoother and uh, it's probably uh, even more important given the number of mechanical things you have to do when you're working with, you know, multiple tools. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, the tools are great. Um, and that's why we, you know, the, the mechanical nature of the tools is why we think two trainers, uh, that's one of many good reasons to have partnership, right? So when we're running these classes, I'm taking typically taking care of zoom. Todd's typically taking care of mural but we'll bounce in between like, so we, so during the PSM and the PSBO classes, those of you out there that have taken it, you've seen us do the, the scrum teach back activity. Right. And so we, we've got this canvas and I don't know, maybe I'll show it here in a minute, but we've got this canvas and what started happening was just serendipitous. Right. So Todd would start talking, you know, a student would share uh, an event. Todd would add some information and I just started adding notes. And I was like, oh, wait, this is working. And so then the next student, I would start talking. Todd would add notes. And it's like this, this great opportunity for new things to emerge, this great opportunity for different ways to facilitate. But it just, it, what amazed me the most is that we were able to just, it worked out. Like it, we didn't have everything figured out up front. We weren't sure if the students would be on board, but it just, yeah, it was just some serendipity and some, some unknown. And it, you know, with the right guardrails and, and goals and, and constraints, man, any, it's, it's emergent and it's awesome, you know? So are, are you suggesting that in a complex situation, uh, having a clearly defined intent or purpose and then executing in multiple short time boxes and using feedback to build and grow could be a very successful way of solving some challenging and difficult situations, perhaps? No, nah, that could never work. Uh, yeah no just, just checking it's so, it's so interesting because like just hearing you describe that ryan and thinking and we can trace this all the way back to the first part of the conversation that we were having with what simon um the assignment he's just coming off of right like 
creating boundaries and letting your smart people solve the problems rather than um, dictating to them how the solution should look, right? Oh, Todd, there's nowhere in the world I could have done it. Um, it's, it was a domain that I wasn't um, conversant with, that I wasn't an expert in. Mm-hmm. And also some of the folks that I was uh, working with, they they so much more experience. And I, I didn't understand the context or the constraints. So it's really important for me, it was ex- really important to have that clarity and the humility to say, look, I don't know everything. Like I've got some tools that I can, can share with you, but how you're going to apply these tools is really up to you because I, I just haven't got all of the complexity of your situation in it. And I think that's, that's core when we're serving others um, that we, we understand our boundaries of our capabilities and also our responsibilities. Because as soon as I turn around to you and go, you know, Todd, if you do this exactly like that, this is going to happen. That's a dangerous thing for me and for you, because I don't know what's going to happen for you. And uh, if you followed it, you could really set yourself up for, for trouble. And then I would be accountable for that. And that's, that's not right for me or for you. Yeah, that's why that's why when I hear the same the phrase fake it until you make it, it, I have like a visceral reaction to it, right? Because you can't fake this stuff. Like if you don't know something, you shouldn't fake that you that you don't know it. That's a dangerous thing. And it's funny, um, not funny, but I, I often say to students in classes, they'll be like, Hey, I'm in this situation. What what do you think I should do? And I'm like, it's really dangerous for me to answer that. I don't know the entire context to your situation. I don't know your organization. I don't know the culture. For me to tell you that a point A to point B to from starting where you are at point A right now to get to point B, for me to tell you there's a linear path to solving that issue with your product owner, with your organization, uh, I'm lying, right? Um, yeah. But we can work on giving you tools to to understand where you might attack um, in a certain area and see if that works, right? Um, and a lot of the tools falling back on surrounding the values and empiricism, right? It's well, it's funny when we were writing our book. So when fixing, fixing your scrum was still young and, and a new thing, we really had to resist that urge quite a bit. Like we had to catch each other so often saying, hey, that's a little prescriptive. What's a question we could put here instead that's exploratory? How can we, how can we make mm. sure that we're not just giving a playbook? That we're actually, the book, hopefully when people read it, they're like, oh, this is how I sense and respond. This is not how I just do things. And, uh, and that was a struggle for us. Simon, I'm always curious when we get book authors in front of us, like when you're putting together, you know, mastering professional scrum, like what, what is that process like? Because I mean, you and Stephanie are basically taking your own practices, but also you're representing, you know, the life work of, of Ken Schwaber. You're, you're representing the work of scrum.org through the series. Like what are some of the, you know, what are, what are some of those awesome moments that come from writing? What were some of the things that, that you really had to um, challenge yourself on? What are some of the things that, that emerged as this book came into life that, uh, that you know, what did you take away from it? That, um, that, that book was a fair labor of love. Uh, it took us about three years to write it. Uh, and Stephanie and I have very different styles uh, of writing. Um, one of the biggest arguments we had was about the Oxford comma, uh, <laughs> which, which I love. Steph's not a fan of. Um, and the, as we iterated through it, we realized that probably one of the most important aspects of it was to have those blocks of questions that we've got at the end of most chapters, yep. which is just inviting people to reflect on aspects of their situation, their context. Um, and you know, when it, we've the first round of it, it, it was fairly like, like this, do that. If you do this, you do that. Um, and it matured to the point where we realized that if we focused and really got people to appreciate the impact of being founded in values, uh, and then using empiricism, the rest will fall out. Um, so there've been some, some feedback that we, we uh, mention empiricism far too much, but to me, most people overlook it and they'll skate right past values and empiricism and then say, oh, at the daily scrum, you should do this technique or that technique or this technique, or, you know, here's the, the 12 best practices for refining a product backlog. And 
the 10 things that you should do in sprint planning. And it's like, no, nah, not really. Um, each team in each context will have their own optimal practices that might work for this sprint that could be completely different for next sprint. And unless we empower and support people to really hone in on what matters to them and how they're going to implement empiricism, then they're missing the point. You know, and that's what I picked up from you. You know, the, the meta of fixing your scrum is how are you sensing and responding? Are your guardrails clear? How are you sensing and responding? How, how's your experiments working? Um, and that, that uh, the thing I loved about co-authoring is that, that friction. Um, it, it's a positive argument, you know, it's, it's, it's healthy conflict where there's every now and then it's like, uh, when we're really honing things down every now and then the sentence would come out, is that a hill you're going to die on? It's like, you know, cause there are some things that were super important to me that Stephanie's like, yeah, whatever, let's chuck it in. You know, it's obviously something you're very keen on and vice versa. So by having that balancing situation, I think we got a pretty good book out of it. Yeah. I, I think the, that, that friction or, or positive conflict served us pretty well too. There were, there were a handful of spots where we were both like, uh, I'm checking out what you wrote. Did you really mean that? And sometimes it was, no, no, no way I was trying to do, but sometimes it was, yeah, what's, what do you mean? And yeah, yeah I think it led to, I think it led to a better book. It, we, what, what was funny, we've, we've talked about this a few times in different meetups where, you know, Todd and I both said it forced us to refine and improve our understanding of empirical process control. Because like you yeah. said, I mean, people don't spend a lot of time there, but we really had to sit down and think about what does transparency actually mean? And so uh, if you ask, if you were to ask a hundred PSM or CSM students, um, what does empiricism, empiricism mean? I think you're going to get either, well, it's the three pillars, transparency, inspection, or an adaptation, or you're going to get wildly different answers, right? And so we really had to sit down and figure out like, how do we actually approach this in a way that that makes sense and, and kind of remove some of that misunderstanding. And, um, you know, transparency is actually not visibility, which is a huge misconception we run into all the time. You know, transparency yeah. is, is well understood. It's whole team understanding. It's, it's well-versed. It's, it's a stakeholder understanding what a product backlog item actually means in the context of the whole product vision. It's a really big thing, but it often gets diminished to, well, I put the ticket in JIRA or, I put the product backlog on the wall and, and really trying to get down to, you know, so that's great. We've, we've got a better understanding of transparency. So what does inspection mean? Yeah. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean checking to see the number of story points forecasted versus delivered. Inspection means how are we doing in the marketplace? It's validating value. It's, it's getting all this wonderful feedback that we often skip. Um, and then adaptation, which, you know, Todd had a brilliant insight during the creation of the book about, you know, we, we spend so much time on, on transparency and inspection, but most organizations are actually failing at adaptation. And the way he verbalized it, it was a light bulb moment for us. It's like, yeah, maybe this is like, maybe this is the pillar that gets the least amount of attention, but is the most problematic in these orgs. And so by the end of the two year journey to write the book, we're like, man, we actually get it. Scrum is not the end all be all. It's actually empirical process control. And you know what? You can get that through Kanban. You can get that through, oh, I mean. Crikey, yeah. It's, so it really changed. It shifted our mindset quite a bit, which was really uh, kind of interesting to see. That's the, the famous Darwin paraphrase, isn't it? It's not the strongest or the smartest of species that will survive. It is that which is most capable of adaptation. Sure. You know, the, the defining aspect of humanity is that ability to adapt and you know we talk about the new normal and you, you pair that up with cognitive biases the way our our brains work uh, the way that we we connect with each other um that that failure to change um that is the biggest impediment of being an effective scrum team or an effective agilist because that, that failure to change really means stasis. And, you know, the world is accelerating. Change is accelerating so much as we move into the fourth 
revolution. I think maybe the fifth revolution, you know, post COVID. Yeah. If, if we as individuals and organizations, uh, cannot embrace and find what is, what is our personal and organizational truths and how we're going to fit to make this world a better place. You're going to be obsolete faster than anything. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, uh, I feel like this current situation has forced people to adapt, right? It's, um, and it's going to continue to do that because I, I'm not certain. And this is just my opinion. I'm not certain or I am certain. I don't, I don't think the world's ever going to be the same. It's going to change exponentially. And I think of all the people that I know that work in the service industry that don't have jobs anymore, but they're adapting, they're getting into something else, right? Like shipping is huge right now. You can get it. You can get a job really easily at FedEx or Amazon or yeah, they are out yep. of their yep. minds busy and they offer yep. benefits and all this other stuff. So, or even the company, you know, what surprised me, Todd Pepsi with all of their subsidiary companies, it's all snacking and, and pan mm -hmm. and uh, comfort eating. There, you can get a job there at, at companies like that. No problem, right? Um, one of the most amazing success stories in the UK um, is a bloke called Joe Wicks. Um, and he's a personal trainer. He's, um, he's uh, the body coach. And he is broadcasting on YouTube at 9 a.m. every weekday, PE. So he does a half an hour uh, physical exercise session for for everyone and he before this he had a couple of hundred thousand youtube subscribers he's now up in the millions uh and he's basically helping people around the world maintain healthiness by by doing exercise which is just amazing right so there's somebody and he's had offers to to take his show into um broadcast providers but he's he's kept with youtube uh, so that it remains free yep. and the more power to him, the profit that he's making from that show, he's then giving to the health service. That's awesome. Let's talk about sticking, sticking with your principles and values. Right? Uh, yeah. It's more power to him, right? What a role model. That That's, that's the model going forward though. I think that's where we're, we're traveling to that. He'll be successful, right? I mean, the the principles and values matter. I think that's the message of your book. It's the message of our book. It's probably the message of our conversation that the principles and values matter and the way that we co conduct ourselves today. So it's easy to have principles and values when we're fat, happy, and dumb, right? Like last year was a brilliant year for, for scrum trainers. Like I think we all had amazing years. Um, in some sense or another, right? It, there was plentiful work. There was great opportunity. This year, there's challenges. And so what behaviors are we going to see? What kind of, a, I'm optimistic. I think people are going to behave pretty well. I think we're going to see a lot of support and a lot of collaboration and a lot of new things emerge. But it's, it's during these times that principles and values actually matter. They keep you from doing the things that long-term destroy you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when we were writing the book, Stephanie and I would often um, challenge the other person like, come on, channel your inner Ken. Yep. And so we had our Ken Yoda on our shoulder and say, well, what would Ken say to this? And, you know, he, he often would strip things down to that, those core things of values and principles. Like how, how are you being empirical? And, um, you know, he's, he, he, that, that quest for professional accountability of tying into feedback loops to make sure that your organizations are doing the right thing as well as making a profit, it's, it's, it's core to it. Yeah, if people knew the, the story, and maybe we can get this, so this will be a stretch. We might be able to do this someday. It'd be, it'd be great to hear Ken tell some of the stories of the principles and values that drove the creation of I mean, initially Scrum Alliance and then Scrum.org and the sacrifices and the, you know, the things that he did where he could have cashed out and he could have done things differently. And instead he, he held that line and built something amazing. I mean, yeah, he's the epitome of the things we're talking about, right? He really is the, 
um, I mean, we're all, we all have our, our things, right? We all have our, our hangups, but Ken is like the epitome of, of this uh, empirical principle and value-driven approach that, uh, that we all try to emulate, right? So cool. how are you guys doing on Timebox? Just about finished with my beer. Yeah. Well, similar spice. <laughs> I got time for... Simon, are we keeping you up too late? You doing all right? Um, no, it's only 8 o'clock over here. So so we're day drinking and Simon's having a proper evening uh, nightcap. Uh, it's After this, it's uh, still sunny enough. Need to take the dog out for a walk. Nice. So nice, nice wander around on a Friday, Avo. That's actually a good idea. Maybe I'll walk the kids later. But um, I think I'm just going to sit in front of the TV and have another beer after this. (laughs) (laughs) Slide on into into Friday evening. Yeah, why not? (laughs) It's uh, three o'clock in the afternoon for Todd. It's uh, Netflix and chill till bedtime. That's right. Simon, we've always had like really good interactions. The last time we saw each other face to face, I think we were in the Netherlands. I think we're in Utrecht, correct? uh amsterdam we were amsterdam is where we were at correct uh we were at a, a steward face-to-face so as simon mentioned uh, he and stephanie so stephanie's still a steward she's rolling off but simon and stephanie a lot of people don't know have worked closely with ken over the past few years to to keep the the professional scrub master course um, up to date and uh, it's been a cool cool thing seeing that course really stick to its core values but kind of um, evolved to the times and and so we got to so Simon and I got to meet up because uh, we were at the steward face to face it's always an interesting um, conversation with Simon in person and I've always wanted to ask you this question um, and so now I guess I have the chance since you're kind of captive here you know you have you embody one of my favorite traits about about people in that you have very strong beliefs like you are not afraid to say this is right but you're also like you hold it loosely Right. So if someone proves a better way, you're willing to put that down and, and pick up the new thing. And so I, I'm curious, like with your strong beliefs and, and some of the things you're thinking about now, um, what is the conference talk you've always wanted to give but haven't because of, you know, it would be controversial. There would be some backlash. Like what's the topic that you think needs to be discussed, but no one is because of those fear of repercussions or things like that? Oh. And you're the man to answer it. Why agile as a commodity is wrong. Oh, tell me more. Well, 22, 23 years ago, when the folks were starting to to use some of the faster feedback loops, the shorter feedback loops that were available in software, we saw the growth of what was, um, what is the agile movement. Uh, it is now a commodity. Every major consulting organization has got, um, an agile transformation, agile in a bag. Um, I've got a couple of ideas about, you know, some, you know, creating a website just to generate certificates. Like you type your text in and your name and boom, have a certificate. You know, no charge. It'll save a few people a few thousand. Um, and this whole pursuit of letters. Um, so you've got uh, agile transformations, you know, in employee organization A, and they will turn you agile by Tuesday next week. Um, give me X amount of money and I can get N of your people at, with so many letters at the end of their name. Um, and my concern is that that doesn't stick with the values and the principles. Uh, a, a question I often ask uh, in a class is like, who volunteered for this course and who was voluntold for this course? Um, and now that Agile is a commodity, is there an aspect of it that is less relevant? Yeah. It's a fun question. And is it going to, is that commodity going to eat itself? Well, uh, you have a look, the certain commodities go in and out of vogue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, silk was a major commodity until someone managed to s- smuggle a silkworm out of China. 
and then the price of silk dropped. Um, cotton uh, only became a really uh, valuable commodity back in the 30s when DuPont came up with uh, a chemical that would stop the, the cotton weevil. Coal, you know, is, is, is on the way. So every commodity has got a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's, interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's uh, interesting because one of the things that a paragraph, if you, if you, if you go through our book says, um, we're, we're almost apologetic. We are apologetic to the development community because a lot of developers have been forced into scrum and it's been misused and all these metrics, these that we've discussed before um, around resource utilization and um, uh, increase your velocity or else I'm going to pull this, this, uh, <laughs> this trigger on my rocket launcher, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and that's, if you, if you talk to 70% of the developers and you ask them how they like scrum, they're going to be like, I hate it. Yeah, and no, it, that's, that's because the kitchen knife's being used wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is Scrum could be a great thing for empowerment or it could be the most brutal framework of oppression that you've ever seen. Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's more oppression um, right now. I think our, both of our books are trying to solve that. Yeah, I, I can care. So all we can do is keep putting some good into the world. Hopefully some people walk away from this conversation thinking about principles and values and how they're using them to make decisions. And if, they, if you have fallen away from that, and look, we do that too. Like yeah. There was a situation just yesterday, Todd and I were on the phone, we had to talk through it. Um, and we, 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 we fell right back on our principles and values and I think we made the right call. And so this stuff happens to those of us who should know better. Like we get, you know, so if you've fallen away from it, sit down and think about it. How do the scrum values influence your life, not just your scrum team? How do how can we get back to a space to where um, we're, we're leading through intent, like Marquis and, and Turn the Ship Around it tells us we should. Like, I think he's, that's a brilliant book, yeah, right? Yeah. Just leadership through intention, not through direction. And, and how do we get there? And, you know, if you need some help, reach out. You know, Simon in the UK, like I said, you know, his, his uh, training and, and consulting firm is, is one of the best on, uh, best on that island. And, uh, he can certainly help you. And if you're in the U S Todd and I can help you work on that. Like we can talk some more and, but uh, I think it's important value and principle driven leadership, and then turning those things, manifesting them into intention Mm -hmm. to lead an organization. That's the secret sauce. That's the win. And uh, maybe we'll pick this up at another point, but my Hamilton Porter from off square brewing is gone another great beer out of crown point indiana i'm so impressed with this brewery i just uh oh man it's amazing you know what though todd i'm getting a reloaded um from eric weber another fellow pst a colleague of ours on this in the steward community simon uh the gathering place is sending me multiple four packs and so we're gonna have plenty of variety going forward to try out so we're gonna Switch. I gotta, get, I gotta get in contact with him and have him ship me some, and it'll uh-huh. help to support his um, his brewery too. Yeah, so we're gonna switch from an Indiana focus to a Wisconsin focus for the next for the foreseeable episodes because it will be it, they are filling up my refrigerator. Um, mm. But yeah, Offsquare Brewing. Quite a goal, man. Yeah, he's a good he's a good friend. It's Offsquare Brewing. You nailed it, Simon. I, I'm sure you enjoyed your beer. I do. I do enjoy Trooper. Trooper was hit the spot. Todd, how did you do, buddy? I just am digging tired hands, and they're delivering right now, which you can't beat, right? Uh, so when- I'm using I'm using I'm using the um, the social distancing thing as an opportunity to be lazy and not leave my house very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right way. I'll tell you what, man. When COVID lifts, I'll have to come out to Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll check this place out. It's awesome. It's a great. Oh, and Simon, we got to make the European trip happen because I still have to see Jimmy Carr live. Yeah. We're going to um, make this happen. We will. We will indeed. All right, guys. It's always great to see you. Simon, before we go, anything that you'd like to pitch, anything that you'd like to promote or share that we can put in front of people? Um, I'd, I'd love it if people um, could have a read of the book and give us some feedback either at Amazon or directly to me. 
and Stephanie. Um, we'd we'd love to hear what you think of it. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, we 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 really did try and write uh, a book that was helpful to the practitioners, and it, it just ties into that values, principles, empiricism. It's just there all day, every day. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear what what you think about it. Um, and if you want to have a chat, just give us a shout. Todd and I loved it. Um, I know this is, it's on, it's, it's always handy. It's a, it's a great guide to professional scrum. And when you pair it up with fixing your scrum, I think scrum masters have plenty of material to keep their teams uh, aligned and happy. So please check both of these out, but yeah, check out Simon and Stephanie's work. It's part of the professional scrum series through scrum.org published by Pearson. There's some great books out there in that series. Uh, Mastering professional scrum is certainly one of them. So do check that out. We'll link all of that in the show. Well, all right, guys. It's another Craft Brewed Agile. Thanks Cheers. for joining us, Simon. Cheers. Thank you very much. Cheers. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.